Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guests, Scott Crenny and Bridget Adair Heron. Scott has written about music, books, and film for several publications, and is the author of Dear Al-Qaeda, Letters to the World's Most Notorious Terror Organization. Bridget is an academic writer, multi-instrumentalist, and has published articles for Collapse Board, Vice, and Eldridge and Lana. Their latest book is The Story of the B-52s, Neon Side of Town, and is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Bridget and Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Ah, thanks for having us. Great to be here. So to first to begin things uh, off, please share us what your book is about. Uh, it's about the band, the B-52s, um, best known for their hits, uh, Rock Lobster and Love Shack. Um, we started from a place where, um, well, first of all, it's the first widely available book ever published about the band in, in their history. Um, and we really felt that they were a unique band, one of the most unique bands in the history of popular American popular music, who had never really gotten their due. And we went into it thinking we were going to tell, sort of just analyze their music and give our thoughts on it. And we found out their story was really incredible and couldn't be really separated from the music and guided them kind of all the way through. So it turned into much more of a research-driven project along the way. Yeah. And um, as a side note about uh, why we wrote the book, uh, we both lived in Athens, Georgia for a long time and were part of the music scene there for a long time. I actually lived there since elementary school and uh, B-52s were a big part of um, my life growing up. And so and then being in a band and uh, being in the music scene for a long time in Athens, Georgia, we were really interested in kind of the origin story of this kind of, you know, seminal band. And uh, what are the conditions that create an amazing creative force to be reckoned with like the B-52s. So when your book opens, it's 1976, and you talk about how five friends are getting together to play some music at a party, and that their musical experiment transforms them to something larger than life. Can you tell us more about what happened at that party? Sure. Um, well, the fir- their first show was at a party. Their first practice was after going out for drinks, um, the five founding members of the B-52s, uh, Ricky Wilson, Cindy Wilson, Keith Strickland, Fred Schneider, and Kate Pearson, along with a friend of theirs, all went and basically got drunk at a Chinese restaurant, went back to the friend's house, and went in the basement and started jamming out instruments. Um, 
those five people had experienced different things, sometimes separate, sometimes together, doing weird art projects slash experimental type music things in Athens, but nothing had really clicked for them in terms of being a band. Um, interesting enough, the friend who was with them decided to catch up on some mail and was upstairs the whole time. He missed out on the jam session. But with the five guys, five people, excuse me, playing together, I was thinking of the hamburger place. <laughs> Um, obviously, uh, it kind of clicked and there was a real alchemy there, kind of energy that was kind of greater than some of its parts. And they realized something special was happening. And it was probably about three or four months later, they played a first show at a party in 1977 on Valentine's Day, a house show in Athens, Georgia, um, continuing beginning in, um, in a long line of house parties in Athens, Georgia. So as influential and successful as they became, and there's a lot of hits that we know, and we'll talk about some of those songs a bit later, but there are still some who are discovering their music for the first time. And so for those who may be less familiar with the B-52s, can you share a bit about their background? Sure. I mean, they they come from a college town in Athens, Georgia. What's interesting about the B-52s as we talk about them as an entity is they've changed a lot over the years. I mean, Ricky Wilson died in 1985, and they achieved their greatest popularity after the fact with different people playing in the band. So when we talk about the B-52s or where to start with the B-52s, it's a hard thing to say. They're always kind of in flux. And I think one of the real motivations in writing this book was we felt that any attempt to kind of sum up the band or define the band simply, like in a single sentence or paragraph, always leaves something out. You know, whether you call them a new wave band or a dance band or tacky or thrift store, um, all or LGBTQ plus pioneers, um, all those things kind of leave something out. And yet people always kind of fall back on those labels. And we really wanted to us, they were very multifaceted and multidimensional because of that. Um, Yeah, uh, we're interested also um, in their fluidity over time, how they changed and adapted. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that fluidity is a real source of their strength. It's not really a hindrance or anything. Something actually is really kind of beautiful in its own way that um, because, you know, we're all fluid. None of us just on a biological level are the same group of cells that we were 10 years ago. You know, we're a completely new generation of cells and we're always changing. And I think they're an example of how you can go forward. Um, maybe sometimes not even in the best direction, but it's good to keep moving all the time rather than just be like, I don't know, say Tom Petty having the same haircut for 50 years, you know? So could you tell us more about the, their background and how they came together to form and how they how they met? Uh, and a little, because I know that's one of the interesting, interesting things about them is that they came together in this kind of artistic enclave in the deep South and they have like their own respective backstories that kind of complement each other in a way that um, forms this tight alliance that we hear through their music. Right. Absolutely. So we could probably start out um, as with some Athens natives in the band, which are uh, starts with Ricky Wilson. Um, and he met the, uh, one of the other band members, Cindy Wilson, because they were siblings Um and then went on to, uh, in high school, uh, met Keith Strickland. And yeah. so Keith and Ricky were really um, wonderful friends and uh, started playing music together and continue on. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say that Ricky was um, really the true musical genius of the band. Uh, Ricky and Cindy kind of grew up in a working class or lower middle class type background in a college town. Um, Ricky worked on a garbage truck in high school on the summers to save money to buy his first instrument. Um, Keith Strickland's dad ran the Greyhound bus station in Athens, which what led the family move from outside of Athens in the country to, into Athens. Ricky and Keith became uh, best friends, very close friends. Uh, Ricky came out to Keith. Uh, Keith came out back to Ricky a couple of weeks later. Um, they were out within their circle of friends at the time they were in high school 
at a time when Athens was far less a progressive enclave in the South as it is now. Um, those three were kind of a group. Fred Schneider moved from New Jersey to Georgia, to the University of Georgia as a student to study forestry. Um, he grew up in a sort of middle-class background. Um, while there, Fred, also a gay man, obviously met Keith, met Ricky, fell into that circle of friends. Um, Ricky and Keith were also friends by virtue of being young gay men in the South, protected by other people in the gay community, mostly professors, art school type people. Um, they fell into that crowd while later in their high school years. And in fact, we go visit Jeremy Ayers, the Athens native who was Silva Thin. I'm a little distracted here, but um, Jeremy Ayers was a, also an Athens native, his a son of a professor at university. He went up to New York City, became part of the Warhol crowd, um, adopted persona of Silva Thin. Uh, Ricky and Keith would go jo- visit him up there in New York for trips and, and see the city, um, which must have been amazing for a couple 18, 19 year old kids. Um, and then the fifth member, Kate Pearson, also from New Jersey, went to Boston University, got a degree in journalism, um, was kind of a hippie. It was late 60s, early 70s, um, traveled to England, where she bartended in Newcastle, England for a while, met a man who she married, named, and we have this verified, this is his real name, Brian Cocaine, uh, spelled C-O-K-A-Y-N-E. <laughs> um, I probably would have said my name is Brian Cocani or something, but he, <laughs> he was Brian Cocaine. They were looking to move back to America, get off the grid, get off the land, and end up in a farm, basically, outside of Athens. And Kate would ride her bike to three miles into town, and Brian would sell newspapers on the side of the street. Um, For the local newspaper in Athens. Yeah. Due to her sort of interestingness as well, she fell into the same group of, and we're talking maybe 20, 25, 30 people here of artists, art school people, um, there was a bit of a music thing going on in Athens, but no different than any other college town at the time. Um, and punk was a big impetus for them, obviously, the idea that anyone could do it. Um, they were all fans of the Ramones. Um, they saw the Sex Pistols show in Atlanta. There was a record store in Athens called Chapter 3 that was one of the guys working there and in charge of buying the records had been a fan of all these um, obscure kind of British bands on Virgin and Island Records. Like Robert Wyatt and Wire. And- yeah, well, Wire came later, Wire but came. he was in the, like a lot of prog rock stuff. Like in the mid 70s, he came to Athens, was working at the record store, and they would go across the street to a place called Barnett's that had copies of English magazines, Enemy, Melody Maker, read about these really cool singles coming out and order them for the store. So all these people in Athens in 1976, when the BP2s were just getting their start, aren't just listening to the Ramones and Patti Smith and things that are even then underground, but still widely available. They're also listening to Perubu, um, Wire, Gang of Four, like really arty stuff coming from all over the America and Britain at that time. Um, so far from being these kind of country outsiders, they were actually as clued in and sometimes even maybe more clued in some people who were playing shows within New York when they started going up there. Not that they saw themselves that way. I think they always undersold themselves. And because none of them were ever college students at University of Georgia for very long. Fred dropped out shortly after he got there. You know, one of the things we talk about in our book is they may have had a bit of an inferiority complex hanging out with professors and college students being non-college students, people who worked as waiters and waitresses and working at a bus station as, as Ricky and Keith did. Um, to, they may not have wanted to claim any sort of intellectual um, identity for themselves or position themselves that way, but yet their music and their aesthetic and the impact they had on New York City when they went up there obviously shows that 
you know, they had a, they were, they were artists in their own right. I really appreciate you going into that because exploring their identities and their backgrounds really kind of gives you insight into their stylistic, you know, their style, their aesthetic, their musical direction. And so I want to talk a little bit about more about the music and what goes into it. And for those who have just even just a cursory understanding of the B-52s can sense that space is a huge theme for the group. And um, the theme of space symbolize ideas of freedom for them. And one thing I found really interesting about your book is how you connect the, uh, the writer Octavia Butler's concept of Afrofuturism to their music, saying that the B-52s reimagine that through a queer and feminist lens. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. I just talked yeah. a lot. Do you want to handle that one, Bridget? <laughs> I don't want you to get... You know. Yeah, so... Um... I think that when their connection to to space um, has a, a lot of crossovers in that they felt very much like outsiders being uh, women and gay people, um, especially in the South. Um, we talked just recently about um, just a few minutes ago about how they even felt outsiders in terms of like the, their other like artist friends or people that had more of a connection, like a solid connection with the university. Um, so their outsiderness a long time, you know, for a long time, space serves as this sort of uh, this realm where, you know, you can create your own vision of uh, your own world. And so they really play a lot with that kind of imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of their feelings of being outsider outside. Yeah. Um, and um, mm-hmm. like for, yeah, I was going to talk about. You're going to talk about. Yeah. Sonar, no, you go ahead, go yeah, ahead. yeah. You're good. Yeah. No, no, go. go. <laughs> well, no, no. I, I remember getting really excited when I found that they attended Sunra shows and like it all clicked into perfect sense to find their big fans. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Sunra was a jazz um, musician and brilliant songwriter, band leader who literally said he was from outer space um, and positioned himself that way. And he grew up in Alabama um, during segregation and was very aware of the racial inequalities um, going on and still going on in America. And um, he took that Jimi Hendrix, they were also fans of Jimi Hendrix, who also played games with like, actually, I'm not even from this planet, I'm an alien. And there's not just a, a freedom, but sort of a post-human, post-human way of looking at the world, where like these things sort of dissolve, these sort of boundaries wouldn't matter on another planet. Much the same way, like, no matter our, all our backgrounds here in America, if you go to Europe and you travel around, everyone sees you an American. You know, regardless of, of your skin color or, or your whether you're Irish or Italian or this or that, they see you first and foremost an American. In outer space, we'd all be seen first and foremost as Earthlings, and those differences wouldn't really matter as much. Um, and that was really it was really exciting to know that the band didn't arrive on that necessarily accidentally. I don't know how cognizant they were, or they certainly never made any claims for themselves as sort of I, you know, I hate to use the word intentionally like, like yeah like, or like we're homo futurists yeah, or anything right. like that they didn't create any sort of theory behind it but i feel like that theory is kind of waiting to be kind of picked up and, and played with by maybe somebody more qualified to write about that kind of stuff i think they were just doing what felt right and really like authentically as artists and that just kind of came through because of their positions in life and what what they experienced you know so far so yeah it's just more of like a you know they just embodied that Absolutely. And there's an incredibly rich culture uh, in the area that they were growing up, because not just with the Af- Afrofuturism um, that they're channeling um, as as a uh, borrowing from black culture into their music, but you also write that their music is rooted in a Southern version of rock that is influenced by gospel. And I want to talk more about those influences, what specifically those elements of gospel, who they could have been listening to, and how that fueled their music through that lens of Afrofuturism. 
Sure. Um, I mean, one of Keith Strickland, who was kind of the musical director of the band, he was a drummer originally, and then Ricky died, he took over on guitar, but he was also playing guitar and keyboards on previous albums before Ricky died. Um, one of his earliest favorite musicians was Little Richard, um, who certainly came out of that, that same um, arena of gospel and took the sort of bringing it up high and the sort of ecstasy and the woos and all that sort of thing, which you hear in the B-52's music. Um, you know, in terms of southernness, you know, beyond gospel, there was also an idea of what people call the thrift store aesthetic. That's something that spans both impoverished white culture and impoverished black culture in the South of sort of turning 25 cents into a dollar or taking, you know, and using the entire pig or jelly jars, which pops up as a, as a reference, um, reference in their similar songs <laughs> of, of store of taking food and storing it and saving it and making do with what you have and getting every last ounce of value out of the things you have. So you know, Ricky Wilson was an innovative guitar player who played with two broken strings in the middle, which kind of happened by accident. And he kind of liked it and kind of worked for him. So um, he kept on with it and made it his own style, like completely unique mm-hmm. and genius and brilliant um, yeah, way of playing. That's very much a Southern thing. And they were also people, uh, Kate Pearson in particular, who, was, who played keyboards on the first three albums, both lead notes with her right hand and bass notes with her left hand while also singing. Um, she would scour the, the, the library records and the thrift store, right? Like she would listen to basically anything she had her hands on, probably because she was out in the middle of nowhere most of the time. Um, on her goat farm. <laughs> and I'm sure she would have found lots of gospel and country and things like that. And you can certainly hear a country ache in um, Cindy Wilson's voice as well, the sort of grain in her voice and the way she really hits you in the gut emotionally when she sings about things. You know, even if the words may not be conventional, I think they brought that to it. Whether you know, whether they did it consciously or was it intuitive or something that just came, they absorbed is another question. Um, I think the easiest place to hear the gospel influence their music is Love Shack, which is a great song to talk about because everyone, including my mom, knows it. Um, there's the bang, bang on the door section when they bring it really down, which to connect it to pop music, something like Icy Brothers Shout or um, uh, I've Got a Woman by Ray Charles, that, that sort of early type soul music. You get very quiet and you bring it back up a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now, and you hear it going bang, bang, and it builds up this ecstasy type thing, which ends with a shout, tin roof rusted, and it goes back to the chorus again. That's very, very Southern and, and very, very organic in terms of the feel of people playing together in the room. You were saying earlier, you know, so was, I, I'm, I'm, thank you for bringing up Love Shack. And I want to talk about some of the songs a bit later, but I really want to all, uh, I really want to talk more about Athens as well as the culture of it, because, you know, you mentioned earlier that there wasn't really much of a music scene at that time. And, you know, we're talking 40 years ago, and it's kind of hard to think like how Athens did not have a thriving music scene when we see what came out of it. And so to get a real sense of just how unique and radical the B-52s were in their own right, um, could you tell us about what Athens was like before that kind of music scene started to coalesce and create this mythology of that area? Yeah. So um, what one thing that we discovered as we were doing kind of archival research um, is that there was this kind of political undercurrent going on um, in Athens at the time when the B-52s were forming in the years uh, preceding that. Um we there's kind of always been this sort of narrative that you would hear all the time about um, the origin of the B-52s, which is that it was Athens was a sleepy college town before these like amazing five people like woke the town up, you know, with their their music. And as we started digging into um, archive archives about um, what it was like to live in Athens at the time, um, 
we found some really interesting uh, some interesting stories that were have previously been untold. Um, you can go into a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think when we we have to be clear when we say yeah. there wasn't an Athens music scene, there wasn't an Athens music scene as we know it today. You know, if you go to Athens now, there's 25 different bars having music every single night and probably five different houses having music every night. There wasn't a scene necessarily, but there was music. Um, in fact, the first public gay dance was held in the South University of Georgia. Um, there was a, two men, um, I want to say Bill Green and John Hurd. I hope I got their names right. I'm doing it from memory from a book I wrote a year ago. Um, Bridget, Bridget's going to fact check that for me. Thank you, Bridget. Um, they formed a committee for gay education. They wanted to have a public dance. They had this dance. There was an Athens band called Ravenstone that played the dance. And Ravenstone's front man wrote um, columns for the red and black um, about equality. Um, they, they had very political lyrics, um, all these kind of things. In fact, when I mentioned Ravenstone, a uh, guy, a journalist named Gordon Lamb, who's written about Athens music for 25 years and lived there in Athens and writes for the Alt Weekly, was so excited that we knew who Ravenstone was and heard of Ravenstone because they're not talked about. And that's a band just set, just a few years before the B-52s. And that's a dance that was attended by Keith and Ricky and possibly Fred. We weren't able to confirm that. Um, so there was a lot of things really happening there that it's like they had everything that the music scene had would need, except for like a regular venue having music all the time and lots and lots of bands kind of playing off of each other. And I think the BT2s having sex, they did. I mean, I don't think I know the BT2s being able to do what they did and going off to New York inspired all the kind of people left behind to start their own bands. And you suddenly have three or four bands. And once that happens and Pylon comes and Pylon goes up to New York and they get acclaimed, Suddenly, everybody wants to be in a band in Athens, and suddenly people start moving to Athens, like, say, Peter Buck, who's living in Atlanta, um, specifically be part of this music scene that doesn't even technically really exist yet, but is kind of its nascent form. And then two years after R.E.M.'s first show, you have People Magazine coming to do an article on all these crazy bands coming out of Athens, Georgia, and it's gone completely mainstream. And from that point on, pretty much anyone within 250 miles of Athens, Georgia, who has any dream being a musician whatsoever, ends up moving to Athens. To, you know, In fact, the BBC2s are probably the only popular band to come out of Athens like that anyone knows about that actually has people who are originally from Athens in the band. So you spend part of your book talking about the University of Georgia and how it played a huge role in transforming the culture of Athens during the late 60s and early 70s. This is the years preceding to the B-52s forming to create the band. And um, one of the most radical things to happen at that school, and this is you know, this is really amazing considering we're in deep South is that, um, you know, some students had formed a, uh, uh, a gay student organization on campus. And I was wondering to tell us more about the culture of the university of Georgia and how that played such a role in transforming the culture of Athens as a whole. Right. So yeah, the reference, um, that's the committee uh, for gay education, the CGE. And that was, um, and you were talking about the two, the two gentlemen, uh, John Horde and Bill Green were there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, we need to be clear too, that that was met with a lot of resistance. Absolutely. Um, it was met with a lot of encouragement from some people, but also a lot of resistance. Um, they took a lot of hits um, one of the, one of the men had to drop out of college. He's getting death threats at his job, working, just working at a motel. Um, them forming the group effectively outed them to their families. Um, one of the founders didn't talk to his father for about seven or eight years. Um, as a result of that, um, they really, really suffered for 
creating that space that allowed other people, including members of the Jews, to kind of be a little bit more open with themselves. Um, it, it's a really inspirational story. And it was the kind of thing where, as we were writing that entire chapter, we had to keep reminding ourselves, this is a book about the B-52s, ostensibly for fans of the B-52s. And it was important to keep that kind of short, but all of that could have been extrapolated into its own book in, in its own right and a real page turner. Um, you also mentioned the art school. Um, they had a museum that was bringing cutting edge exhibits. Um, you know, the B-52s talk about Andy Warhol, very early on in interviews, well, there was an Andy Warhol, like those soup cans were in Athens in 1968 because the museum director brought them to Athens. Um, they would have seen them. They would have been part of that milieu. Um, Alice Neal, an artist getting a lot of attention the last couple of years, was in Athens in 1977 talking to the students, giving symposiums, having her artwork on display. Um, it, we were, you know, Bridget and I are fans of a lot of different things besides music and, and books. And one of them is visual art. Um, one of them is... Um, you know, it, 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 these these connections kept kind of coming across are really exciting to us. When you, when you hear there's an out lesbian professor who goes on to teach at the first women's studies program in the University of Nebraska, she gets fired at UGA. Um, that's to us is as is as exciting as what the B-52s did. You know, and it's very interesting in the book to see how very small things that may not no one did that with the idea of forming a music scene or creating a band or inspiring anyone necessarily. The things that they were excited about. They wanted to share with people, whether it's a record store guy putting all the Brian Eno records in the front because he loves Brian, those first three Brian Eno records so much. He thinks everyone has to have them. You know, people come across that. They pick it up. It's an idea. It passes back and forth. It can really inspire people and it doesn't have to be, it can be even just a purely selfish thing of just wanting to be the best person you can be or live a life you want to live or do things you believe in. But, you know, believing in yourself can inspire other people to believe in, them, in themselves. And that seems to be a lot of what happened in Athens. I'm really glad you brought up the, a lot of the New York art stuff because in the book and as also in this conversation as well because they came down and they, they know there was a lot of um, you know curations and exhibitions that were showcasing this New York art and uh, people in Athens and the culture there was being inspired by it. But what exactly was New York taking from there? Because you do explore how the New York art scene was being influenced by Athens as well. It wasn't just a one-way thing. So can you talk about what New York was getting out of the culture of Athens at that time? Absolutely. Um, you know, I was, I, I, I had a, there's moments where, you know, most of the time you're researching, you're just reading stuff and you're reading stuff and reading stuff. And then you have these moments where you almost swoon in your chair and your heart starts beating a little bit faster because you come across something that you didn't know. And I was reading a book called Art After Midnight. And this is a, written by a guy who's an art critic for Village Voice in the early 80s. I think his name was Stephen Hager. And he literally said the B-52s were the turning point for everything that happened before in New York art, everything that happened afterwards. And that was a moment where I literally swooned in my chair and said, we, we have to write this book. Like we have to finish. It was in our proposal. Um, they, and, and it's amazing. You know, it, it, it's just incredible to me. Um, we had people who described New York as before them as kind of being all black. It was kind of that punk thing, the new wave thing, everything being really cool. And you know, these dudes were cracking jokes on stage. And they're like technicolor in the way that they, they dress and their personalities. And yeah, they were having theme parties in, in Athens and, the Mud Club, which I, I don't know who knows these things or who knows these references, but for anyone who's interested, the Mud Club opens and the B-52s are asked to play the very first show and asked to curate theme parties. And they played Irving Plaza and Club 57, which started by Ann Magnuson, Kenny Scharf, and a couple of other people who were heavily involved in it. Um, I think Keith Herring was involved as well. Um, 
It was a big. They basically so. became like the poster band. Like suddenly the single was this Technicolor, and they're like watching like tacky '60s TV shows like The Jetsons, and they're obviously jumping off of what the B-52s are doing. And you know, the, the the history of Athens music scene is people in Athens doing something, going to New York or LA or London or wherever, and showing up with something that those people don't have. You know, um, every thing that's ever came out of Athens that ever got any national or national attention, there was something happening in Athens that they didn't already have in the city. And it felt like a breath of fresh air and the BT2s to everyone, you know, John Kale, um, uh, there's, there's so many people. I mean, they're invited, they're, they're invited to headline a William S. Burroughs festival put on by the founder of Semiotexts, right? And they're not even signed to a record label yet at the, at the end of 1978. Um, Patty Smith did a reading and the BTUs played the show. And John Giorno, and again, another swoon moment for some of the degree <laughs> in poetry. John Giorno, this radical um, experimental poet. I, 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 you'd probably lose your, your broad podcasting license if I read some of these poems to you. <laughs> Says, looks at the BTUs and goes, those guys are headlining the festival. <laughs> you know. And I think the saddest thing about their legacy is that you know, their farewell tour, they toured with Casey and the Sunshine Band, you know, and, they, and their peers at one point were John Cale and Blondie and Roxy Music and John Giorno and all these people. And I think for better or for worse, you know, as the years progressed, they saw themselves as an entertainment when once they were artists. And that's absolutely right. They are artists, which is why I really wanted to focus so much on that culture and how much goes into that identity, because it's very important because you know, I I was I was born in the late '80s, and so B52s were already big before I became aware of them. So, um, I get personally fascinated by like these kind of like origin stories and how there's a lot more to it. And so, with that, I really appreciated how in the book and in this conversation you cover all that history because it is very important to showcase how innovative they are, despite this complicated reputation they may have now in the grander in the grander musical canon which um certainly your book does a great job in course correcting um so with that i want to shift away from the culture to talk about the music as well so before they go to new york they're playing shows in athens and around georgia what were those early shows like when the band had just recently formed yeah from all the accounts they were just it was electric watching them and that there was just something really special between these five people playing together and creating something really new and that no one had heard before, you know, and everybody was super excited. And there was also uh, comments from people who attended those early shows that they were surprised, like how like practiced they were, like they really practiced a lot, even though they were total novices and they were really just playing for fun. They were, they were friends like goofing off and trying to have like the best time and were huge music fans. Um, but they really practiced a lot. So the shows were very well rehearsed and also really frenetic and energetic. Yeah. And I think the really surprising thing is that the first two shows didn't have a drummer. <laughs> It was bongos. I mean, it was really artsy, you yeah, know, really. I, you know, um, they, uh, they had like a gong on stage. <laughs> um, it was really not people thinking we're going to make a career out of music. It was people thinking we're going to have a good time. We need to have something happen yeah. here. And, and that's another thing about um, the environment they're coming out of being growing up in Athens and it being kind of like not a whole lot going on is that they were creating their own fun. Um, they were creating their own happenings. They were creating something because there was a, there was a scarcity there of 
uh, you can't be entertained by what's going on. You really have to create your entertainment. So math can be pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. So you have to, you know, create something fun and exciting. And that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And I'd say, I, I want to say that their third show, they played three house shows in Athens before they went to New York. The third one had live drums. So when they played <laughs> at uh, Max's Kansas City in December of 77, that was only their second, second show, show with a live drummer. <laughs> So they had real guts. Um, you know, in, in fact, they were trying to get their friend Maureen, who became their manager for a while, to get them a show. And she's like, you need more than six. You can't go to New York. And you only have you only written six songs like you're barely even a band. And yet they went they got the show through another guy, went up there and, and blew everybody away. You know. So they go to New York. They're blowing everyone away at these shows and they start earning this reputation as being an incredible live act several years before they would release their first album. And you write in your book that their success involved a lot of talent, but also involved a lot of luck because they had arrived in New York on the cusp of a considerable cultural renaissance. Can you tell us more about that renaissance and the and that time when they arrived and how they fit into it and that luck that you talk about? Sure. I think there have been an initial explosion of music in New York, of television, Blondie, Ramones, Talking Heads, and... It was starting to stagnate. You know, it was starting. To, it was starting to get a place where the only bands coming up now were bands that sounded like the Ramones, Talking Heads, or, or whatever, or the Sex Pistols, and people were wondering what was going to happen. And we forget that kind of before that explosion in seventy four, seventy five, seventy six, uh, Patti Smith in there as well. Um, New York wasn't really a musical center. CBGB's open, and that kind of helped things to happen. There was just kind of the New York Dolls, and for a city of its size, there wasn't much of a music scene. Um, the BB Two's represent another direction, another another kind of flowering, another place you could kind of go with that stuff besides, you know, isn't it weird how alienated we all are? <laughs> you know, um, the BB2s were kind of like, we're all alienated. Isn't that kind of fun? <laughs> you know, or, or let, let's dance around about it. You know, let's actually, instead of pretending to be too cool for this, let's actually pretend not worry about being cool, which actually turned out to be kind of its own reverse cool, if that makes sense. Um, when, when Cindy Wilson goes, you know, why won't you dance with me? I'm not no Limburger. Um, it sounds silly on, on the paper, but the way she delivers it is completely different. It's deadly serious. And, <laughs> and, and it actually is more freeing than, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to shit on anybody's, you know, <laughs> doorstep or anything, but you know, it, it was something that kind of took the ferocity of, of, of Patty Smith, but made it more something everybody could relate to, you know, it wasn't genius. It wasn't up on, a, it was not like we're up here on a pedestal and we're artists worshiping at the altar of art. It's like, we picked up these instruments, we're friends and wow, look at the cool thing we did. And I think that's always kind of more inspiring for people. It leaves room for people to, to pick up their instrument, make their own art and see what happens. And I think it's always so empowering. Go ahead. And what I think is really unique about it is their playfulness is what they brought to New York. They're really irreverent and smart and playful um, and yeah, and they are also, you know, they, they make it look easy, even if it's not, you know, and so anyone can do it and it belongs to everyone. They also like had this, this like radical inclusivity in their work mm. that, you know, everyone belongs, like no matter who you are, if you're an outsider, there's other people like you and you, you belong here too. And so that was also really radical because it was kind of different than like a removed sense of cool that you might have with, you know, Blondie um, or, you know. 
any of the other kind of cool New York bands. Yeah, I mean, having lived in the city, I can definitely say that you feel self-conscious and worried about looking stupid. I think I, I, everyone's number one fear in a city, especially in an artistic scene, is that they're going to sound dumb or someone's going to think they're a hick because most people are hicks or they come from somewhere else. They're afraid their adolescent past is going to resurface and everyone's going to laugh at them. And I think the DT2 show, there's actually a power in kind of, instead of putting up a pretension or a wall to try and you know fit in, just be yourself and you can actually... I don't want to say get further, but you can, get, you can, you can have a better life, you know? Yeah. Someone says like, you can have Oh, more- you're weird. And you say, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's really embracing who you are and using that as a power, you know, maybe people underestimate you, but you bring something, you know, yeah. it must take a real courage and not to put on leather jackets or something to go to New York and play those shows, you know? And it wasn't because they didn't know any better. It wasn't because they were naive or, or innocent um in fact it, I, this is in the book but I, I think it's worth mentioning chris franz who was the drummer of talking heads talking heads played a show in atlanta before bbg's ever played in new york um and the band that opened for them was an atlanta band called the fans and after the show talking heads were at the fans house for a party and some of the bbg's members were there and chris franz wrote in his memoir about seeing them there and, and going wow those guys look cool they remind me of RISD kids Rhode Island school of design and which is amazing because the didn't go to art school, you know, let alone the, one of the premier art schools in the country. And yet he sees them and, and, and identifies them as having know, some kind of quality, I, like artist credentials, you know, like, as people he wants to know. And um, isn't that cool that these kids in a town of, you know, 80,000 people just um, making their own fun and just making their own fun themselves. and their own art and getting their clothes at the thrift yeah. stores. Um, could could we're, we're so se- yeah we're so secure enough in themselves to kind of create their own fashion and have people recognize it for what it was, and that's all really fantastic to me because you you, you do cover the band's entire discography in your book, but that's after all this historical and cultural context, which is incredibly important, and um, I I really love the the depth and granularity and care that you gave that because it it is what sets that sets them up to understand the music and. Um, how all that came to influence it. So you cover the band's entire discography and you go into detail about the recording process and story behind their songs. And we don't have time to go over all of it, but I do want to talk about a few of their, of their songs some of their bigger ones and some, that, uh, some less so. Um, let's talk Rock Lobster. That's their first single. And you write about how that single would be completely different from the version that would appear on their debut album the following year. Um, could you tell us more about the evolution of that song by a t- by the time it made it to the proper studio release, or proper? I mean, I don't know if proper is the right word, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, what a song, right? It's <laughs> there's an independent single um, done by a guy named Danny Beard who owned a record store in Atlanta and was a fan of the band. Came up, a couple times up to New York on some of the early shows. This buzz is building and he has an idea that you guys should record like a seven inch, which is what all like Devo was doing and Parubu and these other sort of bands were doing to kind of drum up interest and get some more gigs and kind of get you to the next level. And they went to a studio in Atlanta and, and a guy named Kevin Dunn produced it and they recorded Rock Lobster and it's only about four, four and a half minutes long. And whether that was because of time constraints, because of the vinyl or not, nobody seems to know in terms of talking to them about it. In fact, the, I asked Kevin Dunn about it, and he said he didn't even know there was it was missing a verse. <laughs> um, probably because you have to write a book about the BBC twos and listen. And uh, anyway, um, I would digress. So the DB Records independent single comes out, and it just keeps selling and selling and selling. It sells in New York. John Peel plays it on his radio show in, on BBC in England, um, to the point where the BBCs are getting mentioned in. Melody Maker is an unsigned American band. And um, they eventually signed to 
Warner Brothers slash Island Records about, um, I'm going to say maybe 14, 16, to about 16 months after their first New York show, they, they had a record deal. They could have had one sooner, but they weren't really sure who they wanted to sign with. And um, they went and recorded the, the song with Chris Blackwell. And that version is about six and a half minutes long, which one of the most amazing things about Rock Lobster is when you hear it, it sounds like a three minute single. And so you really pick apart all the different parts of the song. It's incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. Um, parts surface, they come back again. And apparently when the band was writing it and they w- would write collectively in, in the room together, kind of jam on stuff, they just kept adding parts. Um, to make, I, I think partly to make it more ridiculous and have more fun, but also because it just kept going somewhere. It's very much a story song and the story isn't really finished until the very end, you know? Uh, I hope that answers your question. I'm not really. Um... Oh yeah, absolutely. No, um, I want to continue to talk about Rock Lobster because that was a song that they played when they made their television debut on Saturday Night Live in 1980. And as I mentioned, I was not born yet, but I've heard from some friends who saw this performance. They tell me how big of a deal it was. And you quote Tom Hanks saying that the performance of Rock Lobster was the cultural phenomenon of the age, and that it was truly <laughs> well, as big I, as the Beatles. Live was the cultural phenomenon <laughs> of the age. Uh, <laughs> So, to be, to be fair. okay. Um, not the performance, unfortunately. But. No, 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 no. I, I think I, I think he said Saturday Night Live was a cultural phenomenon of, of of that time period, which it was. They were all all those people, John Belushi, and everybody were like rock stars. Um, but person after person talked about seeing it, and probably the most famous fans are, are Kirk Cobain and David Grohl. Said it changed their lives, living in their little sleepy town, seeing it on TV. But person after person after person has seen it. In fact, somebody post shared it on Twitter maybe about five months ago and it went viral all over again. Like yeah. Steve Albini shared, like people person at first was sharing like what an amazing band because it is to uh, for our aesthetic, you know, that is the definitive B-52s, Ricky Wilson on guitar, Keister Klein on drums, Kate playing both keyboards, Cindy on bongos and singing mm-hmm. and Fred with a walkie talkie or a cowbell in the case of rock lobster, all five members working together as a collective um, Each bringing their own strengths to the group and making it even bigger than if it had been any of them individually. And it's so powerful and so energetic, like mm-hmm. the way they play together. And when they drop it down into the best part is when they drop it down into the, the <laughs> down, rock. down, <laughs> and they all lay down, and the, they floor. down the floor. <laughs> Talk about gospel. Oh, and then they, and then it's like, and when they come back, you and know, the riff comes up, bah, 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 and they pop back up again, and and they and they're just twice as hard, you know, rock yeah. and and um. You know, and they're screaming like Yoko Ono, you know, like, and you know, yeah, it, it's avant garde, it's catchy. It's I mean, I remember the first time I heard that song, I didn't think of it as being weird, I just thought it was like a cool little song, and I remembered it like, like the first time you hear that song, it's also so catchy. Whenever right? you hear it again, you go, Oh, that's that Rock Lobster song, you know, and so it's always interesting, you know, we, we, we sort of have this idea of pop, or is it underground, or is it avant garde, or is it this? And I think the cool thing about DC2s is like they just allowed all of it to come through, and you can pick out all these little elements. But they're not a surf rock band. They're not. They're not. They're just kind of throwing it all at the wall and having a great time at it. Because if you break down Rock Lobster, both the lyrics, mm-hmm. the music, the structure, it's a really weird, unusual type song, you know. And yet, when you hear it, it sounds like a pop song. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a genius in that, or at least an originality or, or a vision that I think deserves a lot more recognition than just their attacky little dance band from Athens, which is their words, but you know, they're responsible for you know, their own. Um... <laughs> that is one theme that goes throughout their entire career is just, they're very genre defying. 
uh, and that they are always playing with an idea. Like they're never stable in terms of like being able to define them. They're always mixing it up. And even in that, you know, it's kind of embodied in that song, um, how even the song changes like <laughs> throughout. So, yeah. But they're never not the B-52s. Right. Like you never hear them go, oh, that sounds like, you know, Soundgarden or, yeah. or, or that sounds like, you know, Sarah McLachlan or something. Like they're always the B-52s. I think that's possible when they are really being true to themselves and really mm-hmm. letting who they are like shine through in a really like authentic, you know, for lack of a better word way. Um, and just, you know, being, being themselves, you know. It certainly it's no wonder why all these musicians love them and talk about them um, extensively and just how influential they are. And it, it, it's a shame that despite that, that musical um, respect, you know, you talk about in your book, how a lot of critics have seen them as like a campy novelty act. And you touched upon that in your previous answer. But there's a song from the debut album called Hero Worship that you say refutes every claim critics have ever made about the band. And I, and I want to get more of your thoughts about, about that song, Hero Worship. Oh, yes. Such a good song. <laughs> it's a great song. And, you know, as a person who thinks about, as people who think about music a lot, you know, one of the things I really like about Hero Worship is on, on the page, if you just read the words as a poem, it's written from the point of view of sort of a, a victim or maybe a desperate groupie wanting to, to be closer to their hero. But the way Cindy sings like sings it. She completely flips the script on it. Like she's reclaiming this power because it's so ferocious and vicious the way she sings it, that she almost becomes like a, a predator, like coming after the mm-hmm. hero. Like the hero should be afraid <laughs> Yeah, because she's coming after And the music's so driving and insistent, it undercuts the word. It creates this kind of third thing that's neither one thing yeah. or the other, which is just... You know, it's a thing that music can do so well that you couldn't do on a page. And, um, you know, and, and it, there's nothing camp about it. There's nothing silly. You know, there's nothing sci-fi. It doesn't mention space. Um, it doesn't mention thrift stores or tacky. It's a, a woman screaming about desire. And, 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 Which is and, incredibly radical. <laughs> yeah. Know, by any standards, by yeah. any time. Uh, you know? Unapologetically. And, um, and, 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 you know, I would, and also, um, Kate Pearson's playing guitar on that too. So you also have a woman playing electric guitar, which was, you know, we talked about New York. Well, you know, Debbie Harry, uh, I think the only woman playing an instrument was Tina Weymouth playing bass, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so so, that was radical too. It was just like a, you know, an extra element. Yeah. I think a woman woman strapping on electric guitar, just like a normal, and a normal natural thing. They would, you watch the live footage at a time and they switch things around when they need to, and it's not sort of a, it just feels right. Like, like they're no just, ego. They're just, just people in the room moving back and forth. They're helping each other. Yeah. Um, it's really beautiful to see and very inspiring. But, you know, there's nothing, you know, hero worship could have been played by, um, it, you know, it could be played by a great garage rock band from the 1960s, you know, you know, it's that driving sort of beat. Um, it could, it could have been like a riff that some nineties band played too. Um, you know, and it's not, you know, it's it's a great example. There's nothing fey or ironic or there's nothing opposed about it. There's nothing thrift store about it at all. So if you want to call that first album camp or, or tacky, I'd ask you to show me the camp and tacky in a song like Hero Worship. You know, for that matter, show me the camp and tacky in a song like Rock Lobster, you know, which like the Avalanche's Blue Velvet begins with a severed ear. So we were talking a little bit earlier about the confidence and that kind of spirit and attitude that they had. And 
One song I really love of theirs is Mesopotamia, which came as a result of the band being unsure of what to do after the success of their first couple albums. And yes, I really do love that song. And I know there's a lot of lore behind the creation of that EP. Um, But despite the lack of confidence in the direction, their audiences remained enthusiastic about the direction the band was heading in. So could you talk about that song and what exactly it signified for the band at that time? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because Mesopotamia is one of my favorite songs. <laughs> and I just get so excited. Like if people ask like, what's one thing, you know, that I need to know about the BP2 is that a lot of times I'll tell them like, do you know, Mes- do you know the song Mesopotamia? <laughs> and because uh, I just think it's such a, a fantastic dance song. And it really, again, is going to show like how they can evolve and change, but also kind of a sad story in terms of like how Mesopotamia, the mini LP it was supposed to be an album, and they end up with six songs that they just release as a mini album, get back on the road again, and tour. And Chris Blackwell, who's the head of Island Records, who produced their first album, um, didn't want the song Mesopotamia on the record Mesopotamia. Which um, is so frustrating. Because he, he, that... he said it was the worst song uh, of the whole bunch. And it shows, it's, it comes at a time when the band's very unsure, unsure of where to go. And if you're a band who isn't really sure what to do next, there's a lot of people, managers and label people and everybody else who are very happy to make their suggestions. And their suggestions are going to be completely grounded in what's best for them and the record label, not what's best for the art or the artist. Yeah, or what they think. And whenever somebody yeah. tries to predict what is going to get you a hit, they always pick something like lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. You know, something that's going to be really dumbing it down for a mass audience um people don't really have enough respect for audiences i don't think and possibly even including the b52s at this point in their career um you know and and it's a um that song it kind of all comes together and we talk a lot about how hip-hop was happening and how the band themselves were listening to things like public image limited and young marble giants and you know and you know africa Bambata and how all these people in new york city it's a hip-hop scene is happening are huge fans of the b52s um and yet that never makes it into their music the way it does into a lot of their peers. You know, that's something that Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, and even Blondie embrace and like B2s didn't. And yet you can hear in Mesopotamia, this sort of, you can, people break dance into it. It became where, yeah. really, the song from D, a DJ playing in Detroit, it became this huge thing on black radio in Detroit to the point where like 10 years later, the band would play Detroit and a huge cheer would go up when Mesopotamia started to play because everybody knew it. And yet they didn't even seem to realize it for years and years and years. They play it now and they played it and they've yes, they yes. gone back into their sets. Interesting fact about Mesopotamia is the band recently, and this might have, this is an interesting academic idea I'd like to talk about in terms of one of the questions we get over and over again doing interviews is, did you talk to the band? And no, we consulted, you know, a, an archive of 20 years worth of interviews of the band and, and you know, use a teller story. But recently, the band did an interview with Andy Cohen on Sirius XM. Andy Cohen wanted to ask, ask him about the song Mesopotamia, which he thought was a great song. And he asked if Nile Rodgers was involved in that. And Fred said, no, that was produced by Steve Stanley. Now, it's interesting that, that Steve Stanley didn't produce Mesopotamia. It was done by David Byrne when they were working with him on the album. Steve Stanley produced the next album, Whammy. And I think sometimes we tend to prioritize primary sources, you know, someone's telling their story, so it must be like the true story or the real story, the most accurate story. And one of the things we found researching the book was that the band talked far more openly and, and accurately about their lives or their career as it was unfolding than they do 40 years later looking back on it. When they're telling the the the, the band-approved narrative that is like acceptable to all members that's kind of been, like gone through committee <laughs> and is an acceptable version of the, the truth to tell, 
you know, they kind of stick to the same sort of story and narrative. It's almost like there's like a show busy script they fall yeah. back on. And, and, you know, one of the, and at first our answer was very diplomatic. And lately my answer is just being kind of like, no, and it's a better book because of that. You know, and, and and honestly, it's a better book because you know we reached out to the, the management for interviews and things on. like that, mm-hmm. and the management um, encouraged us to write the book, but said they weren't going to make the band available because they're working on a book of their own. That book never came out, and um, there are reasons for it. And mostly, the band wanted control of the narrative, and the four different people could not agree on which narrative they wanted in the book, and so in the end, there was no book. Um, you know, and uh, but I do hope that one day. You know, they do tell even there's even more stories that, you know, we uncovered that we can't share because it's so personal to them. You know, we're very ethical about the way that we chose to write this book, you know, so we're really hoping that in the future that there is the opportunity and the potential for them to kind of tell some of the more deep stories that are more personal to them in a real true way, real authentic Mm -hmm. way, just like they would, you know, I feel like all all those years ago, um, because I think that the world needs to hear those stories as well. It's a, it's a band with a lot of secrets for sure. And, and we face a crossroads where we're, are we going to talk about this stuff or are we going to leave it? And we decided since it wasn't, if anything wasn't the public record, we weren't going to talk Absolutely. about it in our book. Um, our book that, by the way, Fred Schneider called a piece of shit on his uh, Facebook page. <laughs> You, you know, um, it's, it's, you, it's, it's such a fascinating thing. You bring up the primary sources because there's so many like artists out there who have legions of writers. Like, I, I think of Bob Dylan who like, you know, there's countless sure. books on who, the one most unreliable people out there. And, um, <laughs> right, yeah. Good point. and, and so I, I, you know, and that's, it's always kind of discouraging when you, when, when you hear that from an artist, what you're writing about, you know, I imagine they're going through a very not easy time right now, especially with this, um, this, you know, wrapping up their tour. And I, I hope that they come to a place where they can celebrate themselves in a way that they're deserving. And I'm, I'm confident that they will because, and I'm segueing to my next question here, is that one of the things that they're really great at doing is finding joy um, after overcoming tragedy and one of the song that the b52s are best known for is love shack which was a major hit off cosmic thing from 89 and it's one of the all-time great party jams and their previous album bouncing off satellites had the group exploring a deep sadness because they experienced personal tragedy there was a uh, there was a loss in, in in the group and cosmic thing was them transcending that sadness into something more joyous and i was wondering if you can talk about from that perspective of going through that journey and what they had to do to ultimately create this very joyous party jam that really is for better or worse, what they're, you know, what they're really known for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll definitely be the song that's on the TV news broadcast that plays when, when never member, you know, passes. Um, you know, it, it's important to clarify bouncing off satellites. Ricky was alive for that record and played on it. He died before it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, they finished recording the album. Everyone kind of knew if if Ricky hadn't died, the band was probably going to die as well. Um, that was probably that probably would have been their last album. They're on record as talking about that stuff um, because you know what had begun as something really fun wasn't really fun anymore. So there's there's a lot of sadness and kind of mourning and sort of reflecting and and on um, on that album bouncing off the satellites. Even the joyful moments were kind of like a wish rather than something that's actually happening. And I do think that that opened something up and then artistically allowed him to do cosmic thing. Um, Ricky died in 
I want to say October 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, Cosmic Thing isn't recorded until 1988. Um, after the, the Bouncing House Satellites comes out only because um, basically Warner Brothers is pressured to put it out. Um, and they have to be kind of talked into releasing it. They don't promote it at all. The album doesn't do very well. Uh, management stops returning their calls. Uh, label no longer is working with them. And as far as I know, that's that's it. Um, band money got really tight for the band. They had signed some poor contracts. Um, they'd had some poor accounting done on their behalf. Uh, they owed a lot of back taxes and they had very little income coming in. Um, you mentioned how those first two albums continued to sell. That kind of is what kept them afloat. And interestingly, you know, they didn't get together to like keep the band going to try and solve their financial problems. Um, what happened was Keith Strickland, who we mentioned had been kind of involved in the music side anyway, um, began just making music at his house and writing his goals as a therapeutic type thing. And you can hear in Cosmic Thing, um, there's a song called Follow Your Bliss. He was kind of doing these little things on his own. Mm-hmm. And um, just from hanging out, Kate lived nearby. She came by and she's like, oh, this is pretty good. You know, maybe we, sh- maybe we could do something with this. And Cindy showed up and then Fred showed up and they started kind of making music together kind of like in the old days you know there wasn't there wasn't any agenda there wasn't an idea of like we're going to be famous rock stars or anything at all like that it was just we like making music together and these and we're friends which hadn't been a a, i don't think it'd been the primary motivation of that band for a couple of years at that point i think something really special happened because they all kind of came together without any sort of expectations of what would happen and then they they came up with Junebug, which is on Cosmic Thing. And so that song's really special to them as well because it kind of represents, you know, this kind of carefree getting together and kind of um, reconnecting musically, um, especially after, yeah, such a great tragedy of, of losing Keith. Yeah, it was, it was the sorry, first... Losing, uh, yeah, losing sorry, Ricky. Losing Ricky, I'm tired. Sorry. It's all right. It was the first song that they they finished. It was like a real song. I, I think the first... I, I, I'm remembering the, the music that they heard was... Um, the music for Debbie club, which was a song called there's a river. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the instrumental title, uh, for Ricky or for Keith. And I'm getting tired or it's contagious. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, if, if we're here, I really want to, you know, Bridget talks about wanting to turn everybody onto the song Mesopotamia. I always want people to hear the song Topaz, which is a song that doesn't really appear on any compilations or anything like that. And it's a song that for me personally, in the course of writing the book, um, I found very, very healing and moving for me, um, for the things I was going through. It was a song, one of the, one of the really rewarding things writing this book. And we were approached to write this book. It wasn't something that we decided we wanted to do. Someone suggested it to us. We said, yeah, it might be a good idea. Next thing you know, we're having lunch with some University of Georgia press people, um, pitching a book to them or talking, bouncing ideas back and forth on what a beef juice book would be like. Um, I have to confess, I knew the first two albums really, really well. And I knew a lot of the singles really, really well. I didn't know all of Cosmic Thing really, really, really well, um, probably because I was in high school when it came out and I heard all those radio songs 5,000 times, first like on the alternative station and on the top 40 station. Um, Topaz is an incredibly beautiful song and it's very much a song about trying to find a utopia or a better place. And um, I don't know, I, I think there's something... What's special about that band when they're, when they're really special, when they really hit something, they just allow things to come through them. You know, they don't try and steer it or judge it until it's there, you know, after the fact, until long into the process. But initially, they just let it surface and they don't say no. 
they, everyone says yes. Mm -hmm. And you can see the band periods where someone may have said no and, and, and the things were getting kind of moved around. They're trying to think their way through it. They're not, they're, they're not thinking. They're, they're, they're not. The, they're not band. a thinking band. They're not. They're not Brian. You know. They're not wire. They're not talking heads. They're a feeling band. That's where their strength is, for sure. And when they allow that to come through, it's always a reflection of where they are. And you can argue that even Mesopotamia and Whammy and Thousand, those are reflections of where they are too, because they were disjointed or they were not maybe connecting the right way. And those albums reflect that. It makes for really compelling listening, even when the music may not be their best music the same way that Rocky Raccoon is a fascinating song to listen to in the context of the Beatles life. You know, it's not a song you'd play and be like, this is a great work of art, Rocky Raccoon, but you can somehow hear this sort of afternoon shadow sadness kind of fragmentation thing. Like there's an atmosphere in the record that made it on there. And I, and I think the B2s have always to their credit allowed that in, you know, and I think you capture that so well in your book. And and certainly, you know, I as more people discover the B-52s and listen to their music and then have this as a resource to dive further, I, I really hope it, you know, encourages that course correction in a way where the group can find that joy again and and be able to relish in, again, what they truly deserve. And that time will come, that reappraisal is coming, and this is a big step for that. And, and so um, there's so much great music to talk about, and we, we, we can't do that all right now. But in, in the interest of just one more question about why we love this band and maybe inspire some earworms today, uh, you mentioned some of your you, some of your favorite songs, but for, for those who are new to their music, where would you recommend they begin? Oh, to begin? Hmm. Do you mean like, um, tell me more. So to begin, like if they've never heard the B-52s or if maybe they were fans and they're looking for some like hidden gems or what do you think? Does a casual listener maybe knows love shack and rock lobster. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Bridget and I can both agree that our, regardless of our, our, our feelings about things like the, their best album is, is wild planet. Um, yeah. That's what I, we think, I, right? I think the first album is a great place. You know, that's the place everyone goes to. But for me, I think Wild Planet was the, the album that made me a huge fan. I had the first album. I enjoyed the songs or whatever. But there's something in, the, in Wild Planet. Like you hear a song like Strobe Light. And it's just ferocious. You know, mm -hmm. it is just off the hook how fast it's going. <laughs> and it's so fun and, and, and yeah. funny. And, you know, and... It makes you feel free listening to it. And that's... It, it's so Amazing. sexy and, and consensual, you know, and, and so like, let's have a good, let's have a good time, man. Who cares? And um, even more so than the other songs or, or my own private Idaho, which has a huge political thing going on, you know, <laughs> underneath the surface about conformity and, and about people retreating into themselves and, and a lack of community mm -hmm. and what happens when you do that. Um, I, I love that. And then Keish, sorry, I, I, I love, I, yeah. you know, I, I think that, you know, if you read the New York Times or all music guide to the B-52s, none of them tell you to start there. But I really do think that Wild Planet, starting with Party Out of Bounds and, and going into um, Give Me Back My Man and um, Devil in My Car and, and all this, I, I think it's really um, their it's best album. The, yeah. And it's the antidote I think that we need right now. Like every message in that album is something that we could really use right now in the world. Mm -hmm. And so like, let's make a push for that and, and recommend that because I think everybody needs those messages right now. I completely agree. And with that, Bridget and Scott, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It was, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And congratulations on your book. 
Thank you, Bradley. And thanks for saying such nice things about it. Um, I, I hope everything you said it turns out to be true. <laughs> Thank this you really so much is. for having us. It was a wonderful conversation. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guests today, Scott Crenny and Bridget Adair Heron. Their latest book is The Story of the B-52s, Neon Side of Town, and is published by Palgrave Macmillan.